for thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Welcome to the podcast, In and Through Exists, to equip the church to be hearers and doers of the word. My name's Tim. My name's Marshall. Marshall, I kind of pressed you to start this thing quick upon your arrival. <laughs> you didn't even get a chance to grab a cup of coffee. I didn't. That's true. Do you want to hit pause and go grab a cup of coffee? Can I? Yeah, okay, we, we can do that. Oh, thank you. Yep. And we're back. We are. I'm still Tim. And I'm still Marshall, but Marshall with a cup of coffee, which is a which better... Which is happy, Marshall. It's a better version of me, if I'm being honest. You know, while you were away, I decided to look it up and figure out when the West first came into coffee. Mm. And uh, coffee, apparently, was first introduced to the West in the 1720-ish. Okay. Through the exploration of Martinique and... Began sort of in in Germany of all places is okay. where the first coffee houses in the early 1700s came about. Hmm. I my um, father-in-law has done a bit of genealogical research on on his end of the family, and apparently, uh, one of my wife's ancestors in Holland uh, came into a bunch of money. Mm-hmm. Um, inherited, Legitimately inherited. Okay, inherited. Okay, a bunch of money. It wasn't but, like walked into a bank and came into a lot of money. <laughs> no. Imagine robbing a Dutch bank. That'd be a hard thing to do. Uh, <laughs> sorry. Um, no, but um, he actually blew most of the family fortune on two things. Uh, women and coffee. Because coffee was such a delicacy. It was, it was expensive. Mm-hmm. To enjoy coffee on a regular basis was extremely expensive. And you know, far beyond even the... You know the Starbucks pricing of of today, and uh, yeah, so just kind of interesting coffee in Europe thing. This would have been, I think, in the eighteen hundreds. Yeah. yeah, he blew <laughs> blew a ton of money on coffee. Yeah, that is that is interesting. Yeah, I, I think people listening to this like there's this sort of stereotypical obsessed with coffee thing going. Sure, sure. I, I don't think that that's where either of us are. We, I think we more talk like we are than we actually are. I just drink. I just drink a few cups a day. Yeah, and that's just me. We both went through a phase about two weeks ago where we almost, without talking to each other, I know, walked away from the whole thing. It was so weird. So yeah, weird. I take a break from the coffee. Simultaneous experience. <laughs> anyway, we are not on coffee today. Nope. Not in 1720. No. About a hundred years off of that. Yeah. We missed that. That was that was an opportunity there for us that we blew, but <sighs> oh well. Cool. We're gonna talk about some missionaries. Yeah. More of these incredibly inspiring people. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And while I was so I, I just came back from from lunch, but um while I was considering what we were gonna talk about and kind of the time period, I, I didn't really include any kind of what's going on in the world kind of things. Mm-hmm. But there's kind of one major thing that is going to occur during the lifetimes of, of these characters we're going to be speaking of um, that I think is worth mentioning just as a reference point. Mm-hmm. It doesn't touch super okay. closely to either one of these guys. But what's happening in Europe in the you know 1830s and 40s is is a really significant thing. Um, 
there's a, a ton of upheaval happening. So we're not. It's not going to touch to our stories as much because because we're going to be talking mainly about British and American missionaries. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's worth just kind of understanding what's going on as we're trying to kind of we're guiding through church history, but kind of giving people reference points. The 1830s, 1840s in Europe, in in mainland Europe, were a particularly difficult time. And actually, it does affect the island kingdom as well, because what we're going to see is, amongst other things, the potato famine. Oh, right. Yeah. Which um, is an interesting thing, because the potato was not native to Europe. It was brought over from the Americas, but quickly became identified as something that could grow in a variety of climates. Mm Mm-hmm. And produce a significant crop, and although not known for being particularly nutritious, was nutritious enough to be a staple for the poor. And people yeah. could grow enough of it even on their own little plot. And so when when for a couple of years there was significant blight that impacted potato crops across Europe, like sometimes significant percentages of populations died. Right. Yeah, because it became one of those base crops, right? Mm-hmm. Like if, if you look at food around the world, there are a number of these cheap, easy to access things that become a base. Yeah. Potatoes, rice, uh, wheat, and that some cultures use it for bread at every meal, some for mm-hmm. pasta. Sure. Right. Uh, chickpeas. Yep. Right? Beans, maybe. Beans. These kinds of things that just are, for a particular culture, a part of every meal. Yeah. And, and so in conjunction, right around the same time of the potato famine, you also just had environmental situations that really negatively impacted all those, some of those other crops that we, we mentioned, at least the ones that grow in Europe. Mm-hmm. So a time of very, very difficult, um, you know, situations there. And it, what it created was this cascading effect. So what it did was because people couldn't eat, because because landowners weren't getting profits off their land, people started defaulting on loans. And things that were kind of booming at this time, like railroad construction, people were heavily invested in these things. Like people would invest money they didn't have. They'd borrow money, invested in a rail, railroad construction in Germany, let's say. Mm-hmm. And then that doesn't end up going through because of all these other issues. And then they default on their loans and it causes this cascading effect. And then what you have by the 1840s, the late 1840s is a series of revolutions across mainland Europe. So this is kind of when Europe starts to take a bit of the shape that we know it now. Like before this, like Italy, Italy is a new country, like theoretically, like we don't think of it that way. We think, Oh, Italy and Italian, what it means to be Italian is this ancient thing. It's not, even in the mid 1800s, it's a collection of, you know, areas and in quasi kingdoms that are still under the authority of the Austrian Empire. Um, Hungary is another place. Germany is still that collection of random places that it was at the time of Martin Luther. It's mm-hmm. it's it's not quite as diverse, but you know. So you have another French Revolution because between the last time we brought France up the whole Napoleon thing, they reinstituted the monarchy and then they trashed the monarchy again. Could you imagine being the first monarch when they're like, hey, we're going to do the monarch thing again and it's you. <laughs> and you're like, yeah, sure. This feels like a setup. I think it was called the July monarchy. And yeah, anyways, it, 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 I'm sure felt like it for them. So you have this huge series of revolutions across Europe all around the same time. And it's all around things like 
universal rights, not just rights for landholding citizens. Um, things like um, freedom of the press. Um, you know, this this was these were things that just like did not exist in mainland Europe. Now, Britain and America were largely um, exempt from some of those things because they had already advanced beyond the point of where the mainland European countries were. So you had greater greater freedom in the United States and in Britain than you did in France, Austria, Germany, Hungary, Italy, wherever. Yeah, the political and economic stability yeah. of those countries. But to know that like while these, while these missionaries are that we're going to discuss and some of the ones we discussed last week are like putting everything away, getting on a boat, sailing to another part of the world and just starting fresh like while that's happening the world is burning. Mm-hmm. Right. And so the the tumultuousness of the time, the hardships of the time, the you know economic, political difficulties of the time are not preventing them from being faithful. And I think it's something helpful to understand in the context of 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 what we're going to talk about and just to kind of keep people up to date on what's happening in the world. Yeah, I, I think that's a good point, uh, because there's a lot of. If we look at it with these rose-colored glasses, if everything's just sort of good and these people go out and do their thing, then we say, well, we're in a different circumstance. Mm. Um, I, I also was noting in preparation for this, there is a very unbroken and, and modern idea inside of this that we see the developed Western world sending missionaries to common places to send missionaries to to this day. Asia, Africa. Yep. Right? Um, So there's not a whole lot of change there Mm -hmm. over the years. Mm -hmm. Some might see that as a discouragement. These people have been sending people and the gospel to those people for now 300 years. Mm -hmm. At what point... Not 300, 200 years. 200 years, At yeah. that point, at what point does it become unsustainable? Uh, uh, an, an experiment tried and failed. Mm-hmm. I, I think that there would be some that would maybe look on it that way. Uh, to, to lay a little more foundation of what's going on, because we are going to eventually get to Adoniram Judson. <laughs> we are. I promise. <laughs> but we need... Judson comes in while Kerry is still there in India. Mm. Towards the end of his ministry, he comes in. I think it's worth understanding what's going on in India politically and economically. Mm. Uh, Because we talked last time about Kerry not being really accepted and that his own countrymen didn't want him there. Yeah, he had to do most of his ministry in Danish-held territory. Right. So, So here's what's happening in India. Long ago, they find that there are spices and teas and all of these things in India that the people of Europe, the Americas, and particularly Great Britain, want their hands on. Mm -hmm. A great economic opportunity. Right. And so they form the British East India Company, which is going to be in charge of all trade that comes in and out of India. And they get a monopoly on this, this business. It's, it's not a ministry of the government. It's a business. Mm-hmm. This business 
through dealings with the British government, secures a monopoly, not just in India. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. A number of monopolies. <laughs> yeah. But particularly for our context, a monopoly in India. All of a sudden, this cash cow that is India is making the Brits, the British East India Company, so much money. Mm-hmm. They start protecting that. And they start guarding against natives to in, in India that would see them as imperialists parked on their property selling the stuff that they are growing like you know we have to, we need security every company needs a security guard sure right so they develop mall cops <clears throat> to kind of guard <laughs> yeah. what they're doing there and through some sketchy kind of work. They have employees that are native that are greatly indebted to the company and can't work their way out of it. They need to keep these people together and working. And eventually, what is a business starts becoming more than a business. Mm-hmm. And, and what becomes a protection of assets starts becoming a rule of the people. Yeah. And so, for those of you that may know, and I think it's pretty common knowledge, that India is, at one point, the crown jewel of the British Empire. Yep. It didn't come the way colonization generally comes. There wasn't a landing of a ship, a massive army, Mm -hmm. and taking things over. It happens slowly, where a business starts slowly taking over a culture. Mm -hmm. And then as it takes over the culture, it takes over the political system. Mm -hmm. And then it grows so much that the British East India Company is like, we can't do this. Right. But the amount of money they're bringing to the crown Mm -hmm. is significant through tariffs and taxes. Oh, yeah. And so the crown steps in and says, we're willing to help you protect your assets. Mm -hmm. And... The hostile, the, the hostility of the takeover of India by the British is very slow, very drawn out, very contrived, mm-hmm. um, and very different than mm-hmm. anything else you really see going on in British colonization. Yeah, and and the British East India Company, at least so far in history, might be unique. Yeah, in the sense that whilst the British Empire was still, I would say still at this point, one of the biggest players. There was a time when Britain was unequivocally mm-hmm. the, the biggest player, but still, you know, America's still kind of finding its legs, right? And Europe is busy, you know, killing each other in revolutions. Um, at the same time, this this private company is dictating policy to Her Majesty's government. Mm-hmm. Right. And, you know, we talk about the and eventually collecting taxes from the locals. Yeah. So so we, <laughs> yeah. so we we talk a lot like in, in our in modern society, we talk about the kind of the undue influence of the you know private corporations on right. politics. Yep. Again, that isn't a new phenomenon. And in fact, I'd say what we have today is pales in comparison to what's going on in this particular scenario. I would I would say so. Yeah. 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 One hundred percent. And so so that is where. William Carey starts 
meeting resistance from his own people. Mm -hmm. Because the British East India Company has a monopoly on all things coming and going, including, in their minds, ideas. Right? He comes in with an idea to spread, and they say, no thanks, it's not part of our business strategy. Mm -hmm. And he says, I'm not a part of your business. And they're like, oh. Oh, but you are. If you're here in India, you're our business. Mm -hmm. Because India is our business. Right. And and that is that corporate imperialism. I, I don't even know how to describe it, right? Like, mm. So I'm from the world of Walmart, right, in Arkansas. And there have been documentaries done. People complain Walmart comes to town, all these mom and pop shops close and all that kind of stuff. And sure, sure. there is no way to create an equivalency here, mm. right? Walmart doesn't come in and say, not only are we going to build the most successful uh, retail store in your town at the expense of all the other retail stores in your town. We are also going to take over and become the mayor and the city council of your town. Yeah. And we are going to become the police force of your town mm -hmm. and the tax collectors of your town mm -hmm. and judge and jury. Yeah. And make it illegal for you to shop at any other store other than right. ours. And guess where you work? <laughs> you work here. Yeah, isn't that, isn't that great? Right? <laughs> That's the kind of takeover that British East India Company brings in. Mm -hmm. Ag again, not day one. That would be an aggressive war kind of thing, mm -hmm. right? Or at least it would ensue from that. It happens over the course it does. of time. Yeah. And, and so Kerry, like you said, he's mostly in Dutch-held territory mm -hmm. uh, or working undercover, right? Running for his life. And people get the word out. People are inspired by what Kerry's doing. Yeah. Yeah. Amongst those people, Adoniram Judson. That's right. Adoniram Judson is a cool character because he is our probably our first, like, truly American because he was born in 1788 after, you know, the... the um, Declaration of Independence and all of that. Mm -hmm. uh, he was born in Malden, Massachusetts. And so he's a homebred American missionary. Mm -hmm. And uh, he graduated, I mean, graduated from university as a valedictorian at 19 years old. And, and, and in his college days, as most people probably were at that time, uh, whereas now you would, you know, usually you go to college and you're you're exposed to, you know, radical atheism, secularism, humanism. It was more deism mm -hmm. and skepticism that he was he was exposed to, and for a time, kind of walked away from the faith of his his parents. Um, and then, interestingly enough, there's a story where one of the, his school friends, who happened to be staying at an inn in the room next to him, and one of these guys who had really caused him to question his faith dies one night and he can hear the man screaming and groaning in pain and for him this becomes a bit of a spiritual wake-up call that death is real and this friend was not ready mm -hmm. for what was coming to him and so at that point we see Adoniram Judson suddenly start taking his faith quite a bit more seriously yeah and he he goes on to seminary he does he becomes a professor at Brown University. Mm -hmm. uh, or what would become Brown University. Yeah. yeah. He, while he's there, he hears a sermon, Star in the East. Mm. He's already a, a missions fan. Yeah. He's promoting missions heavily 
uh, amongst his students. And he hears this sermon and decides for himself on his knees in the snow, famously, mm. this is what God is calling me to personally. Mm. Yeah. So as part of the Brethren movement in America, mm-hmm. he goes to them and says, we need a mission society. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And they form one. Yeah. Based on his appeal. Yeah, yeah. So the <clears throat> up to that point, yeah, the, the Congregationalist Church didn't have anything like this. Mm-hmm. It didn't exist. In fact, it's the first in America. Yeah. So he, they formed the American Board of Commissioners for Foreign Missions. And, and then so, so he gets that going. And then there's a time in his life within a, a span of two weeks, in February of 1812, he gets married, he gets ordained, and he gets on a boat. Right. And, and what's interesting is he's on his way there to hook up with William Carey and company. Right. Hold what? on. Before we get to the journey. Okay. Another cool story about this. Mm. He, he's on his way. He's, he's got this mission society that has been him and Mills and Luther Rice. Mm-hmm. These are the three names that come together. Uh, they're all engaged to be married. They're all eager to get over to help William Carey. Mm-hmm. Part of the same denomination, and uh, they they have this missions organization formed. They all do the very similar thing, right? Get married, get ordained, get out of town. Uh, Luther Rice's wife or his fiance hears about all of this. She's like, "Nah, not having it." Mm. And so she backs out of the wedding. So like. Two buddies getting married, going through with it. <clears throat> Rice is left out in the cold mm. uh, by his fiance. He does come with them on a different boat, uh, but there's a little bit of fifth wheel kind of a scenario that <laughs> right. that just yeah. she wasn't having it. Yeah. Oh uh, man. So yeah, it was it was intense, but it was a bit much. Yeah. For uh, for her. And while he's on his way over, because he's going to go work with William Carey who is a Baptist. Mm-hmm. And Adoniram Judson, at this point, is a Congregationalist. Right. So similar to... As Bab- is Mills and Luther? Yeah. So uh, similar Luther to... Rice. Similar to uh, Baptist churches in church government, but not in the, in the application of baptism. Mm-hmm. And so while he's on his way over there, he decides to kind of study the Scriptures, because he knows this is going to come up a conversation with William Carey, and he wants to be able to handle himself well. And so he studies the Scripture on the subject of baptism, you know, knowing that at this point the Baptists are kind of the, the the big players in Asia at this stage of the game, and he actually on the boat comes to Credo Baptist Believers Baptism Convictions on his own through mm-hmm. his study, and then once they arrive, uh, both he and his wife are, end up being baptized as believers by one of Carrie's friends, uh, a guy by the name of Mil- William Ward. Right. I just want to point out he came to that conviction by studying the Bible. Mm-hmm. Yeah, who was yeah, that? The Greek Bible. Just just a little poke <laughs> just, out there to all of our non-Baptist friends. Yeah. We love you. Uh we do. Uh and and so this happens for Mills. Mm-hmm. It happens for uh Judson. Mm-hmm. And Judson, his wife, who you mentioned is eventually baptized. Mm-hmm. Before that happens, she writes a letter home saying 
Anna Iron has this thing in his, or she calls him Mr. Judson in the letter, <laughs> has this thing in his mind that he's convinced of believers' immersive baptism. Right. I've tried to tell him to ignore it and just go back to his original convictions. If he gets baptized, I'm not going to join him. This is nonsense. Mm-hmm is the uh, the summation of what she said uh, in her next letter home. She's like, hey, guess what? I got baptized today. <laughs> and Luther Rice, on a different boat, mm-hmm. also studying William uh, Carey's Greek New Testament, mm-hmm. comes to a similar conviction and lands, and he's like, hey, guys, guess what? And they're like, yeah, us too. Yeah. <laughs> which, which then prompts the most uncomfortable letter home. Mm. They have to write the Congregationalist and say, thank you for your time and your money and the faith that you've placed in us, but we're now Baptists and we're resigning mm. from the mission society that we convinced you to form just so that we could go over. Oof. And now there is, in the U.S., what would become the U.S., a mission society that is been collecting money, right? but no longer has any missionaries. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> the abandonment, yeah. the awkwardness of it oh, all yeah. is palpable. Yeah. It's, yeah. it's painful. Yeah. Uh, but they do. Yeah. And, and they end up joining a Baptist society. Mm-hmm. They write in, hey, we're already over here. This is our story. This is what happened. Mm. The Baptist society picks them up and uh, starts supporting them. Not so keen on Luther Rice. Because he's not married. Okay, interesting. And so they decide that he needs to come back Get and wife. raise money. <laughs> oh, sorry. <laughs> he needs to come back and raise money mm. and then come over. So not going to be just immediately picked up. Okay. A man and his wife and his children, it's too much journey, I guess, for them to keep going back and forth. Mm. We're just going to pick you up from here. Luther Rice has the capacity to do this. Okay. He goes back expecting it's going to take a couple of months and then he would rejoin everyone. Mm. Never comes back. Interesting. Hmm. But ends up spending the rest of his life fundraising and promoting missions and mm. Christian education. Mm-hmm. And there is today, very famously, Luther Rice University. Okay. Oh, uh, yeah. yeah. And and so he has his own legacy, mm. but he never makes it back to India for whatever reason. Mm-hmm. Adoniram Judson's not cool with this. Mm-hmm. I, uh, it, it, the text that I read said it, it brought some coldness between the mm, two. I um, imagine it would, yeah. But, uh, which is almost hypocritical because Judson did turn his back on the society that sent him. And yeah. Luther Rice is still raising money to be sent over yeah. to take care of them. I'm yeah. just saying. I'm and just the, real, saying. the reality is that Judson doesn't stay in India for very long anyways. Oh, no. He can't because he was an American mm-hmm. and Britain and America... Happened to be at war, folks. War of 1812. If you think that the British were going to come hard against Kerry, right. one of their own, mm-hmm. because he's bringing in a different attitude, a different idea that's not a part of the business model of the British East India Company, send an American over there, a mm. couple of Americans over there, who are not only a, not only not a part of the British East India Company, but you boys dumped our tea. <laughs> right yeah and so well i think er, at the very beginning of the outset of their journey america and great britain were not actively at war no it was between the revolutionary war and the war yeah. of 1812 yeah, which yeah. is a small window anyway yeah sure 
so yeah, when when they land, it's just not a even even though William Carey and such are living kind of in on shaky terms. Mm-hmm. Yeah. This this might not only be too much for him, it might be too much for the society as a whole, right? Right, right. Like right. your presence here brings so much attention to us mm-hmm. that it's, you're going to get us all shut down. Right, right. So he heads out. Yeah, so they he and his wife uh sail to Burma. And if you can't find Burma on a map, that's because it's now known as Myanmar. Mhm. But uh the British refer to it as Burma. Um and I might flip-flop between the two names as, you know, throughout the podcast. But right. the, the missionaries in India had warned him that Buddhist Burma was impermeable to the gospel. Well, that was the word they used. Right. It doesn't work there. And wasn't legal. It, it would no. have been considered oh, no. a closed country. Yeah. However, standards. however he, didn't, he didn't give it up. Uh, once he got there, he hired a tutor and for 12 hours a day... He studied the language, and he learned to read it and write it and speak it, but at a, a painfully slow rate. It's a very, very different kind of language. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I don't know anyone who speaks Burmese. Um, however, being involved in Muay Thai kickboxing, I've come in contact with people from Thailand, which is just next door. Thai is a totally different language. And so trying to learn that from scratch is kind of the first one, or at least one of the first English speakers to try and master that language mm-hmm. would be particularly difficult. Yeah, and one of the things that he does is not only does he learn the language for the sake of ministering, not only does he eventually translate a Bible for them, mm-hmm. but in, in working to to lay a foundation for others behind him, in the process, mm-hmm. he keeps notes and writes the first ever Burmese English dictionary. Yeah, yeah, which, I mean, yeah, for those coming behind him would be, you know, indispensable. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so he... He settles there. He builds a traditional Burmese bamboo and thatch house. He's there to stay. Um, in 1819, he finally has his first public services. And 15 men show up. Just Most are just simply just kind of curious. Like, what's this, what's yeah. this weird white dude going to say? Um, but he did eventually have one convert. Uh, he would have more eventually, but he has his first one. His name was Nai Na. He was a... 35-year-old lumberjack, and he would be the first, but not but not the last. Um, and, and while this is happening, Judson is, like you said, because this is a closed country, he's navigating this weird political situation, and he tries to convince the emperor of Burma to do some things. Uh, first, to overturn the death penalty for changing religion. Mm-hmm. So at that point, if you change religion, it was a death sentence. That's good for business. If you're to have that overturned is good for business yeah. of evangelism. Yeah. And he also wanted to travel to other parts of the country to preach. So he was kind of restricted to one kind of area and he wanted to travel. Uh, those requests were denied. It's a bold ask. It is a big ask. You, you kind of set yourself up for who are you and how did you get in here anyway? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. But so this little, this little church that he has um, would remain very small. For mm-hmm. a long time. Uh, but eventually they would get a printing press sent over from Serampore, where William Carey and Co. were hanging out in India. And they begin printing Judson's translation of the Gospel of Matthew into Burmese. Um, so he was much slower at his translation work. It was, you know, it'll, it'll, it was a big task to get into. Um, re- reading just kind of this, this, this description from one of the histories of 
of the, the church there. So was born the church in Rangoon, loggers and fishermen, the poor and the rich, men and women. One traveled the whole path to Christ in three days, and another took two years. But once they had decided for Christ, they were his for all time. Um, so things are slow going, but not terrible. Mm-hmm. Then there's more war. Right. This time it's war between Burma and Britain. And the Burmese aren't really too concerned about distinguishing between Americans and British. They look the same. They speak the same language, essentially. So, um, yeah. So even though Judson wasn't British, he was still foreign. And so he and some of his Western colleagues were violently arrested and dragged to prison. Uh, prison in a place called Ava. And to go to prison there was considered a death sentence in and of itself. Mm-hmm. Um, so he suffered there uh, for over a year. And then he was, then he, in his, you know, deteriorated state, was forced to march for months through the jungle to another location where he would be held with British POWs. Um, and this whole time, his wife, remember, he came with his wife. Right. His wife, Anne, was like desperately trying to secure his freedom, doing whatever she could to try and get him out while nursing a new baby that her husband, Adoniram, hadn't even met yet. Hmm. And and so finally, after after years of this, you know, the the war ends. He ends up being released. He he's one of these few guys through these stories where, you know, in these prison camps where the majority of people held their die, and he cl- manages to cling to life. And they do all sorts of torture. They can hang him up by his ankles for hours and hours on end, and do all sorts of crazy things to him. Um, but he ends up being released, and then she dies not long afterwards. Right. And the child dies six months later. Just tragedy. Mm-hmm. I mean, enough to make any reasonable person like no one's gonna blame this guy for being a wimp if he just goes home. One hundred percent, right? Like n- none of us would be able to look at this guy's story and say, you know, you know he no he needs to stay there. He definitely like the dude's. What has he lost? Like all these, all that he's lost, but he continues. Right. One of the one of the trends of the time, the missionary trend of the time. Uh, the the way that they would transport their stuff. You got lots of stuff. Sure. Right. You have those beautiful old trunks that we like to collect today. Mm. Um, these big wooden crates that would take all of their stuff. Uh, one of the ways that that these early missionaries will carry their things overseas mm. is instead of buying crates and trunks, they would buy coffins. Mm. And the point was, I'm going to need this to get home. And that was the symbolism behind their commitment to going. Um, you know, last week I brought the... Uh, the tissue and today I didn't. It's okay. But I'm the symbolism okay. symbolism behind them going was I need a wooden box to get there mm. and I need a wooden box to get back. Mm. And we might as well just buy one wooden box and not waste our money. Yeah. Um and so that's the commitment. I, I don't know particularly if Judson was a part of that, mm-hmm. but that is a very common trend amongst especially the early Baptist missionaries of mm-hmm. the period. Yeah. So Adnarum Judson continues. And 
And one of the, the converts that he has owns a slave, and he convinced that convert to free that slave. And this slave was from a different ethnic group. He's from what's known as the Karen people. And the Karen people are, are actually an interesting people group because they they play a role, I believe, in the Vietnam War, and there's a whole there's a whole interesting thing with the Karen people. But this particular guy's name was, and I'm going to butcher this, but Co, I'm going to go Kota Biu. And this guy had been a known thief before taken as a slave, and he claimed that he had personally murdered over 30 people. He's a bad dude. Mm-hmm. Bad dude. He comes to faith, and because of his zeal for the Lord, because of his his giftedness in all these areas, he ends up getting se- sent south by Judson with a different missionary couple who have since come over um, to reach his fellow people. And I think this is important because Judson's influence is just not what he does directly, but the people he raises up. Right. So he, yeah, at one point, he just goes off on his own into the jungle to preach to his people, uh, the Karen people. And they're ready because, <laughs> so this is so cool. There are some s- interesting similarities between the biblical story and what is known as the tradition of the elders among the Karen people. Now, this is a, a relatively small people group in the mountains of Southeast Asia, okay? Pretty well cut off from, from the outside. Right. Right? They were not, they were not, you know, they weren't loved by the Burmese government or any government, really. It still aren't, actually. But the core of what they called their tradition of the elders was a belief in an unchangeable, eternal, all-powerful God who was creator of heaven and earth. They believed that humanity had been corrupted through temptation by a devil, that they had fallen, and that someday a great rescuer would come. And they lived, this is crazy, you can look this up, they lived in expectation of a prophecy that white people from afar would come to bring them a golden book or a sacred scroll or something like that that was going to lead them back. It's it's incredible, right? Right? Can you imagine? Right, right. And this former murderer, this guy, like this, you know, this this guy who's literally taken dozens of lives, wanders back. And they're like, oh, we haven't seen you in years. He's like, hey, guess what? You know all that stuff that we've been talking about that tradition of elders. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm I'm here to I'm here to let you guys know about it. It's crazy. To this day, to this day, the Karen people are predominantly Christian. Mm-hmm. Like, it's it's unbelievable. Um, yeah, it's, 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 they were just primed and ready for the gospel in, in what, in my mind, can only be a supernatural way. And you could say, okay, was there some kind of connection with, you know, the ancient world where they had some kind of biblical text, maybe, a, you know, missionaries back way, way back when somehow made it their way over there, and this was the remnant of that. I, I don't know. Even a Jewish expectation. Sure, sure. But right. in any case, it's just, it's it's fantastic, especially considering that they were living in, you know, Buddhist-held territory, which is like completely, like total, totally different than any of that. Right. Um, that they had this unique expectation and were ready for it. So Yeah, it's interesting that you you talked about 
the the fact that Judson's legacy is not always about what he did, but about what the people under him did. Mm-hmm. Because we've already talked about like some really serious loss and and effect on him personally. Mm-hmm. He ends up losing a second wife. Yeah, I, I don't know if you'd plan on getting there or not. Yeah, but it doesn't just happen once; it happens twice. This yeah. is how John Piper introduces his section on Adonai Judson from the biography I was promoting last week. Mm. The story of Adonai Judson's losses is almost overwhelming. Just when you think. The last one was the worst. He could endure no more. Mm. Another one comes. In fact, it would be overwhelming if we could not see it all from God's long historical view. Mm. He is the seed that died a thousand times and has given life to Myanmar, Burma, Mm. to an extraordinary movement to Christ. Mm -hmm. His lifelong goal was to translate the Bible and to have planted a church with 100 indigenous members. Mm -hmm. By the end of his life, there were 100 churches in Burma and thousands of believers. Mm -hmm. And if, if I'm not mistaken, I could be wrong, they... Myanmar has the third highest number of Baptists of all countries in the world between behind the United States and India. <laughs> yeah, so I I that would be interesting to look into. Mm-hmm. South Korea would have to be way up there. I think there are a lot of Presbyterians though. Is it? Okay. I think it's more I, I think so. Okay. But the, but you could be right. The issue the issue in that is um I, I know there's over a million and a half Baptists in Myanmar, mm. um, but it there that them as a country mm. have they have always been under very aggressive rule, mm-hmm. imperial rule, mm-hmm. always based on ethnic discrimination. Yeah, right. Uh, I, I think it's in the eighties. They decide to have a democratic election. It doesn't go the way that the ruling ethnicity wanted it to go. So they arrest the woman who wins and kill off all the people who didn't vote for them mm-hmm. or do their best to do this. Mm-hmm. Uh, and to this day, the exact same things are happening all the time. Oh, constantly. Yeah. Right. Uh, the, the oppression of every group that's not my group. Mm-hmm. is very heavy. Yeah. And so that there are 1.5 plus at this point million Baptists in Myanmar is mostly in it, it's like less than 4% of the population. Mm-hmm. That's another thing of note. Yeah. Yeah. Right? Uh so it's it's insignificant as a cultural movement. Mhm. But still significant. These people are holding to their faith in the face of severe persecution, mm-hmm. ethnic and religious persecution, mm-hmm. right? And so when you see when you see reports going on where you have these death marches, where you have massive, massive groups of people displaced. Mm-hmm. 
who are just living as displaced people constantly on the run. Uh, many, not all, many of those are brothers and sisters in Christ. Mm-hmm. Not only that, we would go further as Baptists to say Baptists, hmm. right? Um, yeah. And, and not just being displaced because of ethnic discrimination, mm-hmm. but that their ethnic cultural differences include their faith in Christ. Yeah. And it just changes the way that we look at the world stage mm-hmm. and, and what's going on there, mm-hmm. uh, or at least it should. Yeah. Um, Lindsay showed me a video of uh, a man with his wife and his three kids who've spent la- like the last 20, 30 years uh, working with Myanmar rebels, bringing them the gospel hmm. and helping them learn he's military trained, helping oh. them learn military skills to protect their villages and to keep pushing back mm. against the seats of power mm-hmm. and how he actually at one point got a letter from a Christian group in Iraq and went and helped them do the same in the face of Al-Qaeda. Wow. Uh, and that's just what, like at, at this point, like his kids were born in Myanmar mm-hmm. while he's like in the jungle fighting rebels, mm. dragging his wife and toddlers along the way or fighting with rebels, dragging his wife and toddlers along the way. Uh, these kids are teenagers. He takes them in to Iraq, and as a whole family, mm. they're, like, fighting off al-Qaeda in these sort of protective ways. It's it's actually it's amazing. quite inspiring. Anyway, I'll find out what that uh, that movie is. I'll mm. get it to you. Yeah, it's, appreciate uh, that. It's worth checking out. Cool. So the next person we're going to talk, talk about? Yeah. Dr. Livingston, I presume? Yes. It's interesting how things like that become so famous. I know. It's, like, we all know how he's greeted right. by this journalist that comes. Yeah. Well, we all know. It, it's a thing. It's common knowledge uh, kind of thing for many. But at the same time, it's such a random thing. I know. For that to stick out. Yeah. Compared to, like, the things that he did. Right. It, it, <laughs> it's not even that peculiar of a greeting. Right. I think it was only peculiar because of where he's at. And the context just like is, everyone around him is African and here's he's the one white guy there and like, Oh, I presume you're Dr. Livingston. Yeah. Maybe it's a joke. Like maybe just like a like Yeah, a, but I, I would assume he'd there'd like be other British people around at the maybe, time, right? Like maybe. it's not like these guys are traveling absolutely alone. I don't I don't know. Yeah. I don't know. I just find it interesting that we would historically choose to Grab hold of that. Right. <laughs> yeah. I, here's enough. what makes Livingston so different. Mm. And and I, I did this intentionally. Livingston is very different because of all of these guys that go out. Livingston is considered a national hero. Yeah, he is. He doesn't realize that until he comes back for like a furlough. <laughs> and he's like, what's going on here? And there's like parades. He gets a medal of honor from the crown. Right. An honorary doctorate. Right. Uh, that's given. So all of these, all of these recognitions, mm-hmm. he doesn't understand what, what's going on. Right. And to this day, recognized as a national hero. Yeah. Yeah, I I love Livingston because he's a bit of a rags to riches kind of thing. Not that he was ever like truly rich, but right, like obscurity to celebrity for yeah. sure. So what I did 
what I did for my study on Livingston, mm-hmm. I did a very brief from a Christian history kind of a read, mm-hmm. a paragraph or two. Okay. And then I did everything else secular. Yeah. Just because I want to hear what it is a secular world is reading onto his story mm. that we know why we would celebrate him, mm-hmm. but why sure. does the secular world celebrate him in mm-hmm. his time period and beyond? Yeah. Um, so that hopefully that'll be some interesting color commentary <laughs> onto what you bring as, right. as we go through his life. Right, right. So, so he was born in Blantyre, which is uh, just a bit south of Glasgow in Scotland. In 1813, so he's a bit younger than these other guys we've spoken of recently. Uh, one of seven kids, born in a tenement building, which was kind of like apartment buildings for the working poor. Mm-hmm. Um, at the age of 10, he begins working at a cotton mill, 12-hour days for a 10-year-old. Yeah. Um, and he would work there from age 10 till he was about 26, Although at times he would be able, he was allowed to go to school sometimes. Um, Despite these long days, he gets a bit of an education. His father is a Sunday school teacher Mm -hmm. and an avid reader. And this rubbed off on David. Um, Read his father's theology books, liked them, was interested in them. Also took an interest in the sciences. Mm -hmm. And at first his dad's like, oh, don't go into the sciences. Like, that'll just erode your faith or whatever. Yep. Uh, but ultimately, David convinces his dad that, hey, actually pursuing the sciences and becoming a doctor could actually help the mission of the church. And so then his dad's like, all right, fine, I guess. Right, yeah, he <laughs> he he's interested in missions work. Mm-hmm. And his dad's like, ministry work is good work. I don't know you need missions work. Right. <laughs> right? And we sure don't have money for you to be a traveler. Mm-hmm. Right? Mm-hmm. So why don't you just simmer down a little bit and just stick to a local thing? Mm-hmm. And he hears someone speak about medical missions. Yeah. And he's like, hey, if if medical missions is the only way, my only ticket to missions... I'm a study medicine, right? Yeah. Right, which was one, which was the first thing that was really interesting in the study uh, from the secular perspective is they sort of begin at the notion that he grew up with this in- interest in the sciences and particularly in medicine, and along the way, he also like when they're listing all the things he's able to do, they're like yeah. he also ends up studying Greek, of all things. Of all things, right? <laughs> as if, as if there's no common foundation amongst these things, right? Right. So he he ends up studying medicine. He ends up learning Greek and uh, studies even some divinity along the way, right? When when is the very secularization of the guy wanted to be a missionary? He yeah. didn't have a ticket to missions, mm-hmm. uh, and and so he becomes a doctor so that he can do medical missions, mm-hmm. and that's going to be his ticket. And it's actually the medicine that affords him the opportunity to express the mission that he wanted to do, which is the foundations for his studying of theology mm-hmm. and Greek so that he can read the Bible in its original language and, <laughs> and hopefully eventually follow in the footsteps of people like Carrie and Judson who are now famously translating Bibles into to native languages. Mm-hmm. Uh, but all of that sort of 
summarized in a single sentence side note right. of the great the great doctor who they, they also put off as like peculiar in that he's a doctor he's an explorer because he loves going to foreign lands mm-hmm. and uh he's a businessman yes. who who does great dealings with the local people and never <laughs> Never address. Never never putting it together that the guy's a missionary. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right? <laughs> and what he's bringing to the people is medical and economic and, and political mm-hmm. aid mm-hmm. to the people and leveraging these things that he has, which is what missionaries do, right? Yeah. You leverage what you have to offer socially mm-hmm. uh, to gain a seat with them spiritually. Yeah. Yeah. Right, uh, but their mind—they're like, look at this splattering of these <laughs> random things that this guy learns how to do. By the way, oh, man. by the way, uh, he also studied a little divinity. Along the way. <laughs> yeah. So what actually happens is he's studying medicine and theology at the same time, mm-hmm. right? And he ends up leaving the established church, becomes a Congregationalist. And joins the London Missionary Society while he's still in school because it was the only one open to Congregationalists at the time in that country. He was accepted, received, they gave him specialized training. And in 1840, right, like within a week of each other or something, he receives his medical license and ordination. So, like, he's, he's, again, he's not like, he's not a doctor with like, oh, and also like, I'm a Christian and I'll share my faith. It's like, no, no, no. He's, he's doing these things concurrently. Right. Because they're going to, like, because the medicine is going to serve the gospel. You talk about these guys, it makes you just want to look at the mirror and go, hey, what have you been up to? (laughs) I know. Yeah. Well, yeah, for sure. So, Although his dream had originally been to go to China, plans had to change. Britain was at war with China. Britain's at war with everybody, it seems, in this in this episode. Britain's at war with China in what is now called the First Opium War, which I won't get into, but yeah, spoiler alert, had something to do with opium. Um, and so while trying to figure out where to go, he connects with a guy by the name of Robert Moffat, who had just returned from the missions field in South Africa. Mm-hmm. And they have these chats, and Moffat writes regarding their conversations. By and by, he asked me whether I thought he would do for Africa. I said I believed he would, if he would not go to an old station, but would advance to unoccupied ground, specifying the vast plain to the north, where I had sometimes seen in the morning sun the smoke of a thousand villages where no missionary had ever been. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that was interesting because when it was summarized... Um by the University of Glasgow, uh, they talked about that smoke of a thousand villages that had never yet been discovered. Right. Um, As if it was a colonialization kind of thing. Right. Because there's a a big part of British East India Company Mm -hmm. and this mindset of taking over the world, right? That's why Britain's at war with everyone. Mm -hmm. Because... They're trying to just do what they're doing in India right. everywhere. Right. The states, the colonies are like, we're not having it. Mm-hmm. Get out of here. Right? China isn't having it. Get out of here. So there are all these wars creeping up, but this is what right. Britain's trying to do. Mm-hmm. And, and the secular publications paint Kerry as a guy who Livingston, does... Uh, Livingston. As a guy who does this with nuance. Mm. <laughs> 
it's more complicated than that. I, I, I've got some notes to speak to that yeah. that subject in in a, in a moment. But so he he departs for Africa on a ship. He arrives originally in, in kind of British colonies where where Britain really has a foothold in Africa. Mm-hmm. But from there, he traveled. Uh, he and, and some colleagues traveled for over two months by ox cart to the Kuruman mission, which at that point is kind of the the most remote. And so from there, he would then go on these long treks, these long journeys, often with like local guides through into the countryside to kind of go to these unknown places. He, he had a real adventurous, adventurous spirit. Um, and from there, he decides to found a new mission in what is now Mabotsa, Botswana. So not even what is now modern day South Africa. Uh, this is, these are the types of distances he's, he's traveling so oftentimes on foot, uh, mm-hmm. so like over the period of like, you know, months traveling sometimes thousands of miles, like it's crazy. Um, and life was dangerous at this new mission. Uh, lions would often attack the herds and people on one occasion, Livingston helps fight off a lion. And it crushes his arm and drives him to the ground. And he om- he's almost killed by the lion until one of his colleagues, an African missionary, um, kind of distracts it. He also gets bit before the group successfully kills a lion. Um, but that's that's just the kind of guy, <laughs> the kind of guy he is, right? He's right. like defending the herds of these people that he's trying to, you know, evangelize. And he's willing to fight a lion for them. And and it's it's bold not only because of the lions and such mm. to travel into these territories. Mm. A lot of what the British are doing is gathering these villagers for slave trade. Well, the British actually, at this point, the British aren't technically, technically doing this. There is some Livingston indentured, doesn't agree with that. There's some indentured servitude built into the yeah. Some Livingston's the, letters home say mm-hmm. we are the chief proponents mm. of this slave trade. Right. We are making this possible. Right. 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 They're not practicing it at home, mm-hmm. but they are the ones supplying it yeah. to other places or and have been for a very long time. Yeah. So my point is just to say. A white man stepping into these villages. Mm. Oh yeah, this sort of thing. Maybe maybe these particular villages know, but word spreads. Mm-hmm. This sort of thing has is the kind of thing that I would assume African villages would be very much on guard against. I would think so. Right? Mm-hmm. What kind of intel are you here to gather mm. so that you can do to us what you've done to others? Um, so it's bold, even just in being present. Yeah, in these places for sure. because of what has gone on before you. For sure, for sure. Yeah, and and there's a way in which European powers are kind of promoting slavery without having their hand directly in it. So what mm-hmm. they're doing is they're they're encouraging certain groups to enslave African groups to enslave other African groups to extract whatever resource it is that they're going to sell to Britain cheaply. Mm-hmm. Right. And so so even though it's it's kind of one of these things where it's like, well, I'm not doing it, but I am I'm not stopping these people who work for me from doing it. And so that I can benefit from that. Right. So, right. And that's where that's where I say, OK, sure. Practice on the islands. Mm-hmm. Slavery is not necessarily taking place under the name of slavery. Right. Right. Whatever. Livingston sees very much that slavery is taking place mm-hmm. under the name of the British crown 
mm-hmm. and the practice of British economy. Sure. Yeah. No, for sure. Yeah. So while he's abroad, he gets married to a missionary kid who was raised in Africa. Her name is Mary. As it seems like every woman was named Mary up until like 1920 or something. Um, but he, you know, so he would occasionally move from one outpost to another. He was constantly trying to kind of push into unknown areas, um, constantly kind of advance these things. Oftentimes his, his efforts would be focused on trying to convert local chieftains. That was a good way to kind of have influence in mm-hmm. those communities. M- mixed success, right? There is some success. There's a lot of struggle. There's a lot of people who kind of flip flop back and forth, right? As as that as is true in in a lot of mission fields, as is, as was true throughout church history, as we've already seen. Sure. Um, he then kind of gets really obsessed with this idea, this idea that he has to find a path kind of across the African continent, from the Indian Ocean to the Atlantic. Now, it would seem that that has nothing to do with the gospel. Why? Why is it so important to find this route that's going to kind of dissect the um, the African continent? Well, it's going to make it easier for missionaries to travel. It's going to open up, you know, uh, trade and cultural exchange and all these things as well. So for him, this actually does serve missions, even though... It might not seem that at face value. And so along with a significant guide of, of warriors, like local warriors, he crosses, I mean, he crosses like the Kalahari Desert and mountain ranges and lakes and places that no white man has ever seen before. He comes to something that the locals call the smoke. Um, what is it? This, oh, I, my notes are all gangly. Anyways, sorry. Victoria Falls. He, he obviously names it Victoria. This beautiful... This beautiful um, waterfall that, of course, he just names after the queen. <laughs> sure. I mean, it already had a name. that's what you do. It already had a name. Um, so he wants to promote the advancement of Christianity and trade because he sees that as being able to abolish the practice of slavery. Right. So he says if, if, if legitimate business, rather than these sketchy dudes on the fringe of society, if we can get like, if we can get you know, proper trade and these things happening and people can become converted to Christianity, that's going to hurt the slave business, mm-hmm. right? Because he saw that as one of the biggest cultural ailments. So in, in a weird way, because a lot of times we kind of frame the quote-unquote colonial... Insert the number two to continue. Sorry, we had a bit of a break there. Mm-hmm. We never have breaks in episodes, and this episode's had three. Yeah, we've had some. Yeah, that's mostly my mostly my fault. Sorry. So, to go back to just what I was saying, sometimes, sometimes the advancement of Western ideas can actually be a net positive, and that's what that's what Livingston was hoping for, right? He was seeing, look, like as people come to faith as we can kind of modernize the society we're going to see less of the type of atrocities here this is going to be this is going to become a place where there's going to be less of those types of things and so that was his that was his goal in any case and so that's why you have this this bringing together of medicine geography trade and evangelism right and 
And this is where this is where I noticed specifically that the Lost World got it wrong, mm. right? It, it wasn't he wasn't doing colonialism with a nuance, right? He was doing it with a different paradigm, right? Yeah, the whole purpose was not self-serving; mm-hmm. it was other-serving. Yeah, he was going in. How can I help these people politically, economically, physically? but most of all spiritually. Right. And there were, there were these historians speaking to the subject, baffled by the fact that when, when the British are run out of Africa and when these countries gain their independence, everything gets renamed back to its tribal names. Mm-hmm. Everything becomes whatever it is they're going to be as independents, right? They're no longer going to have these colonial monikers above them. Right. With the exception that everywhere you go in Africa where Livingston had a, a, a serious contribution, his name still stands. Mm. Street names, town names, monuments— None of these things have been destroyed or renamed. Mm-hmm. They're held on to. And he's held in high regard when none of the other British colonialists are. And they're like, it's just a, it's a, a tribute to his character and his contribution. No, <laughs> it's an entirely other thing. Right. Colonization, colonialization, sorry, colonialization is self-serving. Mm-hmm. And when you are operating under a self-serving idea, it is inherently evil and will lead to evil acts. Mm. Mm-hmm. But that's not what he was doing. Right. He was serving them. And to this day, they were focusing particularly in Malawi because he does later on get this sort of adventurous itch to find the source of the Nile River. Yeah, he does. <laughs> uh, they were speaking particularly in Malawi. Like it's just covered, Livingston, everything, everywhere mm. you go. Because although the secular historians of the University of Glasgow and the other places that I did this research with, although they didn't get it, it seems the Africans got it. Yeah. They understood what he was about. Mm. Um, Yeah. Mm -hmm. No, I love that. Yeah. So as we mentioned, towards the end of his life, becomes a bit of a celebrity. His travels are published bestsellers. He loves it. Um, Yeah, he ends up attracting the attention of a new organization, Her Majesty's Government. And, uh, you know, he, he's going to spend the, the last years of his life living in Africa, suffering from illness time and time again. Um, he, his wife will die, and eventually he will die, um, kind of in, in somewhat of obscurity, kind of mm-hmm. off the beaten path, just kind of living amongst the locals, continuing to do the work there. And um, one of these guys that, you know, I think at the outset of what he wanted to do, didn't expect, I mean, it's not that he didn't expect great things to happen, but probably didn't expect to be remembered the way that he has. Oh, for sure. Um, and yet, you know, it seems as though the the work that he did um, has had a lasting impact. And he's, he's, as you as just mentioned, remembered fondly, not only in his home country, but in many of these places he traveled to. Yeah. Well, thanks for listening. This podcast is a resource of Memorial Baptist Church in Stratford, Ontario, in cooperation with the Gospel Coalition of Canada. See you later. See you.